and welcome to Tell the Damn Story with veteran award-winning authors Alex Simmons and Christopher Ryan. On Tell the Damn Story, we celebrate the trials and tribulations, the challenges and joys of creativity, and hopefully, along the way, help you tell your own damn story. That's right. That is what we do here, and tonight... We're Tonight, do it Halloween style, isn't that right, Alex? That's right. It's whatever style that is. We're going to be doing it that way. We are so dedicated to Halloween that we brought not one but two, two count them, two Dose special authors, guest right, stars yes. today, and we have with us from Horror Writers Association of New York, James Chambers yes. and Carol Geisander. Yes, welcome yes, to the yes. show. Hello, well, welcome, 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 welcome um, uh, to everyone listening, and thank you yes. for having us. Hey, <laughs> our pleasure. Our pleasure. And just so, so both of you know, yeah, not only do we there. do it as a podcast, yeah. but we've gone YouTube, so uh, they're going to be seeing you as well. Is that okay? That's, that's I want to make sure you're not, you know, wanted by the feds or anything. It's a little late so to tell them that. that cause yeah. <laughs> it's just happening make already. Sure. <laughs> you know, we're dotting those I's and crossing those T's. Yeah. As a matter of fact, hair. he's glad he combed his hair. Um, yeah, okay. Well, at least you have hair. Look at me. There you go. Um... <laughs> Alex, could you give us a little background on the Horror Writers Association? I absolutely could. The Horror Writers Association is a nonprofit organization of writers and publishing professionals around the world dedicated to promoting dark literature and the interest of those who write it. As a matter of fact, HWA, Horror Writers Association, was formed in 1985, which is a great year, with the help of many of the field's greats, including Dean Kuntz, Robert uh, McCammon, and I hope I pronounced that properly, Joe R. Lansdale, who's been on our show before. And today, with over 1,250 members in countries such as Australia, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, Costa Rica, Denmark, Germany, Honduras, India, Ireland, Israel, Italy, Japan, Netherlands, New Zealand, Nicaragua, Russia, Spain, South Africa, Sweden, Taiwan, Thailand, Trinidad, the United Kingdom, and the United States, it is the oldest and most respected professional organization for the much-loved writers who have brought you the most enjoyable sleepless night of your life. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and it's so big that it's, it's broken into regional chapters. And we have the co-coordinators of the New York chapter. But we also have background on Horror Writers Association New York. Alex, I'm happy to read that to you. The New York <laughs> chapter, no, I'm sorry. The New York chapter of the Horror Writers Association consists of local authors of horror and dark literature. The chapter hosts monthly meetings on Long Island and in Manhattan to support the professional development and growth of our members. And they coordinate local events and networks with other writers, artists, editors, and publishers working in the genre. And some of those activities include sponsoring writing critique groups, staffing booths at local literature and pop culture events, and hosting public readings for members at local venues. <laughs> okay, so All there right. you go. Um, Horror Writers Association New York didn't even let COVID defeat it. No, and they couldn't go to out to meetings. They Zoomed it up. And uh, that's that's the only way I've really experienced HWA so far. Um, there are two ways uh, uh, to experience HWA. If you are interested, both these uh, uh, fine, fine representatives of horror will talk to you about uh, uh, maybe possibly coming uh, becoming involved in HWA. But there's also a second feature, 
And what's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? And they are the co-hosts, Carol and Jim are the co-hosts of Galactic Terrors, a YouTube show that is shown the second Thursday of every month at uh, 8 o'clock, right? Yes. Yes. New York Times. And uh, they feature live readings from local horror authors. Um, you know, there's so much. I'm not sure where to start. I know where to start. Um, I know where to start. Let's start with Alex. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> let's give uh, Carol first, because that's how my mama raised me. Let's give Carol a moment to just say hello and maybe say just a couple of things about yourself. And then we'll give Jim the same opportunity. And that way folks get to hear your voices. Excellent. Well, what fun. I'm delighted to be here with you guys. Y'all you, you, are so much fun, and I, I love listening to the show. Um, I, myself, I write uh, horror, dark fiction, suspense stuff, and science fiction. I also edit the same uh, for, for Writer Punk Press and other opportunities, which is very cool. I am usually to be found writing with my black cat, either Velcroed to my leg or on my lap. And if you hear her around here, you will know that this is an official online uh, presentation because we will have had a cat. So, yes, you got go. you. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, could could I add a little bit to Carol? Please. Um, uh, Carol uh, edited and appeared in Hideous Progeny and Merely This and Nothing More. Edgar Allan Poe goes punk. Classic horror goes punk. There's a few more. Uh, Shakespeare goes punk. Um, yeah, we'll definitely be talking are, about the punking here. We've got no, these were all, all <laughs> great collections of um, steampunk or other alternate versions of the uh, the classics. It's a lot of fun. Um, but she also appears in The Lost Librarian's Grave, Tales of Madness, Horror, and Adventure, and Cat Ladies of the Apocalypse, which is, I just love your titles, guys. These are fantastic. Hell's Mall. Um, also, What We've Unlearned, English Class Goes Punk, um, and on and on it those uh but there's one well, okay okay but we got to give jim there's a chance one to last one okay one last gonna, one go, go. trust yeah. me always trust me i i'll there's try one <laughs> that both are involved both <gasps> no, carol not and that. jim yes oh, okay yes, that's correct. what is that it's uh recently uh released under twin sons alternate histories of the yellow sign the legendary you know what? I'm going to let you guys talk about it because I get too spooked by it. But uh, uh, Carol has a story in it, and James edited that collection. So what a segue. Excellent. So let's segue into James there. Yeah, thank you. It's a great segue. Um, Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign, an anthology that I edited for Hippocampus Press, who published it in June. And Carol has a story in that that has been getting a lot of attention. And it's no surprise that Carol's story... Uh, the Yellow Crown has been called out in uh, several reviews of the, the book. Uh, it's a great story. And it also includes some, uh, I mean, a really fantastic lineup of authors, John Langan, Karen Warren, and Kay Schwader, and Linda Addison contribute, contributed poems. Um, <clears throat> Tim Wagoner has a story in there. Mm -hmm. um, Daryl Schweitzer, Mark Abbott, Stephen Van Patten. Uh, Lisa Morton. So it's, it's really, I had a blast editing that book and the response has been great. And just uh, earlier this week, it wound up featured in a, uh, a roundup in the Washington post by Michael right. Durda of, you know, Halloween 
themed, or not Halloween themed, but story collection is perfect for Halloween. So we were really thrilled to see that. The book has been getting such a great response. And, um, yeah, very happy with it. And just just to backtrack a bit, I I just want to say how relieved I was when you you brought up background info on the HWANY. Uh, that it was legit background info and not where we've hidden all the bodies. No, I got no, a little no. nervous there. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, what did he Just the pieces, Jim, really. There you go. Yes, yes. Uh, now, Jim is underplaying himself, Alex. Because yeah, I, I know. If, and if I, you I, go to Amazon. Go Alex, for him. Go for him. Yeah. There's 34 different titles associated with one James Chambers. Uh, of course, Under the Twin Sun. But the newly released, where did we put it? On Hierophant Road, which I just got the other day. I've just started. I'm about halfway through the first uh, story, and it just I just clicked in, and I was like, "This is great!" It's the rest of the night, and my sons came home, and then you know, things happen. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to getting back into it. Um, and also, there's the Corpse Fauna series. Um, these are just picking t- titles that I loved. Three Chords of Chaos, a badass fairy tale. And then, of course, uh, Jim, you, uh, Alex is going to get excited about this stuff. You've handled some great characters. Yeah. The Spider. Yep, yep. Green Hornet, which is one of Alex's favorites. Yeah. And one of my all-time favorite characters, Kolchak, the Night Stalker. As a matter of fact, you have a new title coming out from Kolchak. Isn't that correct? Yeah. It, it came out over the summer. It's uh, a new, a kind of a new twist on Kolchak in that he uh, teams up with a, a group of other pulp and pop culture characters um, for, you know, to sort of face the big evil, uh, you know, so something, something even bigger than Kolchak can handle on his own, but it's still <laughs> very much a Kolchak story. It's got that Kolchak structure. Kolchak is the narrator, and it's it's uh, a slightly altered version of the classic title. It's Kolchak and the Night Stalkers, uh, the Faceless God. And uh, I love Kolchak. And he's, he's one of my favorite characters to write because his voice, um, his perspective, as I understand it, provides so much opportunity for uh, fun dialogue, satirical commentary um just sort of you know insights into not to sound too heavy but the human condition but i've always seen kolchak as you know sort of an opt uh he's a humanist a cynical humanist in in a way yes yeah i've seen him as as literally just a slightly just slightly extraordinary everyman yeah. Because you yeah. know he is—he is like the clothing. Everything about him is—I'm—I'm I'm just trying to keep it together. Kind of attitude about him, and yet I wouldn't go up against half the stuff he does. <laughs> well, that's—that's that's what makes him so memorable, and I think that's why his fan base has lasted. I mean, for, for people who aren't familiar with Kolchak, yes, I was hoping you would do that. Oh yeah, it, yeah. he was Je- uh, an author named Jeff Rice who passed away a few years ago. Wrote. The Night Stalker. And it was a novel featuring Kolchak, who is a, a kind of down on his luck journalist uh, who, who drank a lot more in the novel than he did ever did on the TV yeah. show, <laughs> yeah. except maybe for, the, for that first movie. And it was yeah, that first movie. He, he did a lot more things than he yes. did in the TV show. <laughs> uh, and the first movie is called The Night Stalker. And mm-hmm. it was produced uh, by Dan Curtis, written, the, the teleplay was written by Richard Matheson. Though. Yeah. Um, he tells you about the quality of the, the storytelling. Yeah. And it 
it aired as a TV movie, a TV movie of the week in, I think, 1972 or three. Right. And yeah, that would work. It was, it was the highest rated TV movie uh, ever at that time that it that it aired. Right. And so naturally they followed it with a sequel, The Night Strangler, which was also written by Richard Matheson and which is a very different story from The Night Stalker, but is just as good. And Jeff Rice wrote a follow-up novel, The Night Strangler, based on that story. So it was a really kind of a weird, twisty thing there. Yeah, I like Rice, that. Jeff Rice wrote the novel that was adapted for a TV movie then by Richard, by Richard Matheson. Matheson. Yeah. Then Matheson yeah. wrote The Night Strangler, which Jeff Rice adapted for a novel. Uh, <laughs> and all, all of this starring Darren McGavin as Kolchak, uh, giving yeah. really one of the... the um, the most iconic performances in television history, I think. And yeah. it led to a series in, uh, in 1974, a TV series called Jack the Night Slugger, which lasted for one season. And the reason that it lasted for one season was because um, Darren McGavin was carrying the weight of the show. on mm-hmm. his oh, yeah. He was acting uncredited as a producer. He was involved in the scripts. He was developing the character. He was doing a lot of things to make the show as great as it is um, that the, the, the production team wasn't doing. So yeah. and, and at some point he got tired yeah. and he decided yeah. I'm going to go do other things. And uh, I don't think they understood what they had. I no, I, I yeah. don't think so. I mean, I don't, I don't know offhand what the ratings were like for the, for the series. Mm-hmm. If it was, if they were strong enough that it would have continued. That was 1974. So it was only right. two years after the original film. Um, right. Yeah. 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 It's very. I, it was I mean, like I remember, seventy-two, and then the second film, seventy-three, and then they did the one series. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would yeah. just quickly say that in remember because I I was a, a young man at that time watching the both the two movies and then the TV show, <laughs> and I remember the quality of the stories began to wane as it progressed, as that season progressed, and I remember there was some mention then, and of course in later years that McGavin was just frustrated. Because, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't get the kind of quality he wanted to maintain. And let's remember, this man had been in television since the 50s and had done film and everything. So he was a seasoned actor and, and a very good one at that. Well, having recently watched all, all the episodes with my wife, she had never, she really didn't understand why I was so excited by Kolchak. So I showed her the two uh, uh, made-for-TV movies, and then we went through the series. And... You can see where corners are starting to get cut, you know, halfway and three quarters of the way through and all of that. But the thing that, sh- that stuck out was that McGavin never, never waned. He was always, you know, 100% the character. And, um, I, you know, I, my admi- admiration for him grew as, <laughs> as <laughs> the quality <laughs> of everything around him started to sink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But he, um, and, and he turned that into a, a pivotal show and a pivotal character. It was one of the inspirations for the X-Files. Yeah. And um, I think it's more, I think the character is more popular now than he was in the seventies because yeah. I can't talk to a horror writer. Who's not, you know, a dedicated fan of the character. And, I, I have no idea what they're talking about. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, th- that's the enduring part of something that was, such a fluke, you know, that, that, that all of those elements came together despite obvious obstacles that, you know, that um, they created something so memorable and so lasting. Yeah, let me yeah. ask you, but, let me ask I, you I, about, I, I, we're going to do the, the finger war. 
being a fan, how did you go about writing the character? I mean, it's, you know, emerging writers all have their favorite characters, but from the dream to the reality is a journey, you know? Did you write a bunch of other stuff first and then they came to you because you're James Chambers or what happened? Oh, how I wound up having the opportunity to write Kolchak is um, around 1997, 1998, Moonstone Books uh, obtained the license to publish Kolchak in comics and books. And I happened to be at at a uh, Chicago Comic-Con right after that, and they had a booth there, and uh, a mutual friend introduced me to Joe Gentile, who's the publisher at Moonstone Books. And said, hey, this guy writes horror. You should talk to him about Kolchak. And so uh, we had a conversation and, you know, Joe and I got along well and said, okay, send me some story ideas. So I sent him some story ideas after the convention and he got back to me and said, these are great, but we're going in a different direction. And, you know, they had another author lined up uh, who was at the time a best-selling author. And honestly, that was that was that for no joke. Um, close to 15 years wow. <laughs> um, on Kolchak. But I wound up writing other pulp characters and through that connecting again with Moonstone. Um, I had written a Domino Lady story for an anthology edited by Ron Fortier. And that wound up bouncing several publishers before it landed at Moonstone. And uh, on the strength of my, my story in that book, Joe asked me to write some other stories for the Moonstone anthology. So that I wound up getting to write the spider, the green Hornet and Kolchak. I was asked to write a Kolchak story for one of the, uh, I think for the second anthology they did. And at the time, it, it's really weird how these things work, but two of my good friends were writing Kolchak comics, Christopher Mills and CJ Henderson. Um, both, both people that I know, Chris and I were editors together at Techno Comics back in the early 90s. Oh, my goodness. Techno. Wow. That's a blast from the past. Okay. Yeah. And, right. um, and Chris and I had published a comic called Shadow House around 1997, 1998, a horror comic that we, we created. Um, and I knew C.J. Henderson. He, he was a New York author, horror author, pulp author. He wrote just about everything, um, wrote for DC, for Marvel, uh, wrote for... Um, various tie-ins and media properties, wrote a really great Monsters comic and things like that. Um, <laughs> and then I think around 2014, 2014, C.J. Henderson uh, very very sadly passed away. Um, and Joe and I had a good relationship at that time. So when he was looking for someone to bring Kolchak back into comics, he reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested. So it's, you know, it was one of those things, I guess if you're looking to get, you know, get, to a character you love or something like that, the, the takeaway is, you know, be persistent and keep up the connections. Don't take the rejections personally. You know, when Joe turned down my early uh, submissions, I was like, okay, this, this just doesn't work for them right now. Uh, no, no problem. I'll move on. And, you know, coming back to it, um, we were able to connect on other projects and keep up a good working relationship. And it just led to more things. And now I'm right. I'm actually writing, uh, I have about three or four Kolchak projects um, that have not been announced really on my desk. We have okay, you can announce them now. Right, you can announce them right. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to pivot this. I've got to pivot this. We can come back to it for sure. 
But we started out talking about horror in general, and then we sort of became fanboys for a, fan people for <laughs> I, a moment. I was there. not involved in that at yeah, all. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. Just take off that shirt. No, no, don't. Okay. Hey, <laughs> hey. So hey, let's, let's go back to... Family uh, show. Yeah, let's go back. Yeah, right. No, let's go back to a couple of uh, questions. And, and, and the first one I'd like to sort of throw to Carol. Uh, and, of course, James, you know, after Carol, you can, you can pop in there. But, I mean, <sighs> horror... Wolf, what, I mean, what is horror, what is, it, what is a horror these days to you? I mean, because I, I know when I was coming up, it was, there were certain things that happened in the movies and the books and, and, and that you could find and experience. And, and then some, somewhere over the past 60, 80 years, there have been transitions. So what, what does a good horror story mean to you guys now? Carol, would you start that? Yeah, well, let me start. I my feeling is that there are many, many different subgenres of things that can be called horror. But to me, horror is a feeling or or a mood. It's the kind of thing that makes the you know the hair on the back of your neck uh, uh, tingle and stand up. And it could be the unknown dread. It can be the building dread. It can be, of course, the horrible guy jumps out with a chainsaw and, uh, and such and, and wears the mask and all that stuff. But to me, it's a feeling of disquiet uh, and, and a feeling of horror. Is that silly to say? No. I feel like you can put horror in any genre, just the same way that many stories have mysteries in them. Well, you can put horror in just about anything. That's the way I look at it. Okay. And James? Yeah, I agree. Horror can mix with just about any other genre. I think that's our master plan is where horror is going to creep into all the other genres and slowly take over. What an appropriate <laughs> word. <laughs> <laughs> creep. Yes, yes. We weren't going to um, tell him, Jim. We weren't going to tell him. Right. It's a master plan. I've exposed it. I've exposed it. Ah. Um, but I, I think there are so many subgenres of horror that it can be difficult to kind of pin it down. There's everything from pure psychological horror where, you know, nothing supernatural happens or it's all very uh, emotional to extreme horror, which, you know, is a popular subgenre where it's, it's focused on um, often on violence and, and extreme situations and things like that. And for me, what the, the sweet spot is somewhere between like weird fiction and psychological horror. I, I love stories that have that element of disquietude. Things are askew. There's a, a sense of menace that maybe you don't fully understand. Um, and I think the best horror is are stories that take readers out of their comfort zone and don't let them get acclimated to whatever this weird shocking thing is and and you know you still enjoy it you don't want to you don't want people to read something and be so horrified they never want to read another word you write um but you have to get you have to get readers outside their comfort zone you have to get them thinking about things in a way that they may not have thought about before uh that kind of casts um either casts a dark dark light on things that are familiar uh and turns them into something fearsome or uses dark stories to cast, you know, a, a clear light on something strong, you know, positive or, or strong. Mm. So would you, would you, in either one of you, would you consider uh, an example of what you've just expressed to be something like the difference between, since we were talking Night Stalker, uh, the Night Stalker with a vampire who didn't speak a line in the entire experience, had no dialogue, 
So a vampire is just basically moving through the story as this unholy terror. Um, or, and I know this is one of Chris's favorites, the most recent film incarnation of The Invisible Man. Mm. I don't know if you saw that, uh, James. You know, yeah, I saw, I think there are two very different takes on horror. Because in The Night Stalker, the vampire is really an enigma in, in, in a lot of ways. And the only way that Kolchak or anyone can get a handle on him is by looking at the old folklore, the old superstition to kind of define what he is. But he's a monster, uh, you know, a creature of the night in, in the, the traditional sense that he, he's a force mm-hmm. um, for evil or for, for ill, uh, for death. The in, in The Invisible Man, it felt very different to me because that was far more rooted in an interpersonal, a specific interpersonal relationship. Mm-hmm. And the technological aspect of that, that movie, and I hope I'm not spoiling too much for anyone who hasn't seen it, but um, takes away the sort of weirdness of the vampire. You know, because we're, we're never really sure from the, the TV movie why Janos Skorzeny exists or where he's come from we get some hints but he's really just this horrific force that's come out of nowhere and is preying on the city Um, but it's it's is he's unique there's there has never been another vampire in las vegas and you know as far as anyone knows there probably will never be another one Um, but when you go to the invisible man once it becomes a technological thing then there's potential there for anyone to become that monster there there is Uh, a there's a um common denominator in both of those though mm-hmm. um nobody believes Kolchak and nobody believes the wife and there's that element of not being believed of having to question your own reality or push against the common reality that i think also adds to a sense of horror that you know am i Am I crazy? <laughs> or, or was that a vampire? You know? And one of the great things about Kolchak is he has very little doubt, but um, he's thwarted at almost every step with, you know, others doubting him. And that happened to the wife in, in the new Invisible Man, the, uh, uh, the modernized or whatever. Um, you know, but that's an interesting point, too, Chris, because a lot of times you just have to suspend reality in some way in order to get to the weirdness of the story. Right. It's just like a, a modern mystery story these days. So why didn't they just pick up the cell phone and call somebody? Be, right. Well, there has to be some reason why. You know, right. There has to be something unusual, something that makes people in a situation where they're not believed. You know, no. they're, they're taken out I, of the ordinary. And I, and I love that the, both of those two characters are telling everybody. And it's just so outrageous. That no, in the, and then you get to explore that part of it. Um, could I, if it's okay with you, I'm going to switch channels a little bit. Um, both of you have written uh, for many anthologies. And I think that might be something that would be attractive to um, our audience of emerging creatives. It's kind of the chicken and the egg thing. Do you write stories and then an anthology comes by and you're like, hey, this would fit? Or do you write when you hear an open call or you're invited to? How does that work? And what would you advise emerging writers 
who are looking to participate in those kind of experiences? Well, I, uh, I, I do both of those things, and I even went one step further. Um, I, I tend to write to open calls that attract my attention. I have some stories that, that, for whatever reason, aren't accepted, and then I shop for a home for them somewhere else. You know, I see a call, oh, what's in the trunk, and, and I'll see if that fits. But um, I also got together with a number of my friends, and we started our own little small press called Writer Punk Press, and that's what some of those uh, anthologies behind you, the hideous progeny and uh, merely this and nothing more, um, we can come back to talk about the punk later, but we did that mostly because, um, A, we wanted to get ourselves published. B, we wanted to learn more and get, you know, more experience with editing and such like that. And C, we're also supporting a no-kill animal shelter out on the West Coast. because mm, that's Fantastic. Yeah. And you, you chose, for those who chose um, uh, applying horror and, and steampunk-type tropes to uh, classic literature. Basically, we took uh, classic literature, things in the public domain so we wouldn't get sued, and we asked the writers to make punk stories out of them, any kind of punk they wanted, cyberpunk, steampunk, biopunk, diesel punk. There's so many kinds of punk, um, atomic punk. Um, And uh, to do something interesting with a story that wasn't what the original story did. Um, But that was a great way for me to learn how to write a story on a theme. And, and I think that's an important thing, you know, so that is one of the things that you mentioned, of course, writing to a particular call. I find it really interesting to do that. If you take something that's either a classic work and you're, you're riffing off it or you're following a particular call with um, criteria that you're supposed to follow, it gives you a framework to, to, to put your story in. Otherwise, I could write anything. You know, all of us could. We could write anything we wanted to, but how do you know where you're going? You know, how do you know what you're going to do with this story? But having some a target, I, I find really yeah. helpful for writing a story. Yeah. You know? I was recently an open call for horror stories about trees, but the second paragraph said, we really have enough story about trees, so we're looking for, like, moss. <laughs> I and, I, and the light bulb went on. I was like, I got that story. <laughs> James, okay. uh, chicken or yeah. Sto- stories about fungi. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you're a fungi. fungi. Star- starring um, Ryan Reynolds. Yes. We'll continue with this interview after a word from our sponsor. And now back to our program. <laughs> chicken or the egg. Do you, uh, uh, maybe you did it one time right to the open call and maybe now you're as a different situation. How, how did the anthology experience go for you? I start, I started out before I sold my first story, I was pretty much writing whatever I wanted to write. I have, I have an idea. Let me see if I can turn this into a story. Hey, here's a cool thought. Let me make this into a story. And I was doing that for a while and not really sending things out. And, uh, I heard about an anthology call for weird Western tales and um, just had a thought, oh, I could do something with that. And so I wrote a story that fit that. And um, actually, that's a funny story on its own. I wrote two stories because there was an element of um, historical fiction to that. And I misunderstood one of the one of the. Topics on the list of things they were looking for. Um, They mentioned the Barbary Coast. And they were looking for San Francisco circa the gold rush era, Barbary Coast. And I thought, oh, Barbary Coast, uh, Barbary pirates in the early 1800s. And, the, you know, 
not not really not really understanding. Wait, what? Why would that fit with weird Western? <laughs> and wound up researching and writing a story about Barbary pirates, and then going back and realizing, oh no, I got this completely wrong. So I wrote a completely new story about the bar, doing more research and writing a story about um, San Francisco, and. That was the first story I sold, and I sent that in for the anthology, and it all worked out for the good because I wound up selling the other story that I'd written in error to another anthology that came up uh, not too long after that. And so that was kind of, you know, that's sort of like the chicken and the egg, you know, I guess it's Schrodinger's poultry because what's in the box, the chicken or the egg, you know, you don't really know. <laughs> Nicely um, done. Yeah. You know, I had, I had yeah. written those, and, and I just, so, but... Most of my fiction, um, it's it, it's a split. It's probably maybe not quite 50-50. It might be 60-40 stories that I have just written because I thought this is a great story idea that I like and then found a home for it and stories that I've been invited to an anthology or I've targeted an anthology. And sometimes an anthology call has helped me finish a story that I started but couldn't get a good handle on. It's mm. a story I started writing in the late 90s. Uh, it's actually the, the first story in On the Hierophant Road um, in, the, in the new collection. It's called The Price of Faces. And I wrote a version of that in the late 90s and couldn't really wrap my head around the language that the story required because um, there's some odd things about the reality in that world that make the language different. You can't use everyday right. language. Right. Um, it wouldn't make sense in that world. And so I had to figure out how do I write uniquely to this world. And maybe 10 years later, there was, um, I'm guessing at the time frame, it might, I don't remember exactly when, when it was, but uh, Michael Bailey was looking for stories, uh, sort of science fiction-y, weird stories for an anthology, Qualia New. And I knew Michael was very open to experimental writing. And so I thought, you know, I bet Michael might like this story if I can figure it out. And, and you know, with the time that had gone by and my time away from the story, I figured it out. And so that's one where an anthology call helped me finish a story that I had mm. started writing. And so, you know, there's that, that old writer's adage, never throw anything away. <laughs> you, know, you write down a story idea, keep it, you cut five pages, keep it, you know, you write half a story, but you can't finish it. Don't toss it. You just never know when that stuff's going to be another file and dump it in. Yeah. Uh, if I could tease your book a little bit, how you solve the problem you brought up in that first story is absolutely delicious because as a reader, you don't notice it right away and you're thrown a little bit off balance and then the pieces start adding up and, it all falls into place. Ah, and then you understand the world and the story starts really kicking in. It was uh, a delightful experience to find myself going through that. So nicely done, sir. Oh, That'll be 10 Thank bucks. you. Thank you. Uh, That'll be 10 bucks. <laughs> in the mail. Do you take Venmo and PayPal? <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, Thank you. If we could mention a mutual friend of ours, all four of us have been delighted by the legendary Teal James Glenn, um, he was saying when he was recently on uh, Tell the Damn Story that he has a, ha a penchant for the 
the anthology he writes a story for doesn't accept it and then it's the next one he sends out or whatever and that happens a lot it's a good point to bring up for writers um how do you not get down on that how do you keep going and keep sending it out everyone tells people to do that but the how you know how to separate the emotion and keep going and keep believing i think they would really love to hear what you have to say about that uh, do we start with Carol again? Because we absolutely That has start become with Carol. the tradition. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll alternate. Yeah, I, I think there's two things to think about it in that case. One is that um, we are writing words on paper, and when somebody decides that the story is not right for what they're looking for, they're rejecting the words on the paper. They're not rejecting me. They're not rejecting Jim. Or, or, you know, they're rejecting the words for that particular story. So it could be the best story in the world, but not what they want. And I try to tell all my friends the same thing when they've gotten a rejection, saying, but look at what they just said. It says in many rejection letters, this was great. It wasn't what we needed for our anthology. So, you know, that's important to keep in, in mind. It doesn't, that doesn't mean it feels better. Um, but the other thing I think that's important to remember is when we've written for a particular submission call, where like one of the, one of the anthologies that uh, uh, my friend Michael Ventrella was editing was, had to have the words release the virgins in, in the, and in the story. Well, that's a great idea, but can you picture how many stories there were that weren't accepted that had sure. those words in them? And if you flood the market with those, um, everybody's going to say, I know this was just rejected somewhere else. So you have to tell I think, yourself. I think you're going to edit that line out immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you got you to take the long view uh, of the game. And if, if it's a story for a particular anthology call that's identifiable, tuck it in the drawer, yeah. put it on the list, to, you know, hold it for six months until it, they're not all over the market anymore, and then look around and see what you want to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes the, the editing out of the original request strengthens the story the story, you know, I had one for a Pink Floyd inspired anthology and I had done one called us and them. And they really wanted a lot of bits of the song, maybe not direct quotes, but inferred. And, uh, when it didn't work out, uh, you know, again, you put it to the side and, you know, six months later, uh, another open call came and I realized the themes of that story would work. And the more I took out of the, the, the Pink Floyd ish of it, um, the clearer the, the the story became. I don't know if it'll, you know, it's in submission now. Who knows? Maybe they don't like it either. And <laughs> it'll become 40, 40 different stories before someone finds a home for it. Um, but as an exercise, you know, it's never lost. If you don't get published in that anthology, it's not lost. You know, you've written, you've accomplished that. All right, now where do you go from there? Where do you go from there? And where do we go from there, Jim? What do you think? Yeah, I I think you go on to the next story. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's the perspective I've always kept. Is I finish a story, I send it off, and you know the best thing to keep me from sitting around chewing my fingernails <coughs> waiting for a response is just to get started on the next project. Yeah. And um, you know the way that public, the publishing wheels turn slow um, in the indie press in particular, they can turn at glacial speeds at times Uh, other times are very fast you you know it's unpredictable but Mm. i've had i've had stories that i sent out and literally forgotten about um for months because i was just on to the next project or projects 
and then it'll pop back into my head. Oh, you know what? I never heard anything back about that. Let me, let me, let me see what's going on. Let me check in or, or whatever. Um, but it, you know, rejection, uh, it stings. It always stings. I think every writer feels that. Um, and Carol makes a great point that what you have to keep in mind is they're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting your writing skill <clears throat> or necessarily your ideas. They're rejecting those specific words on the right. paper, that, that particular story. And there are dozens of reasons that may have nothing to do with the quality of your story that would cause an editor to decline a story. They may have just accepted one very similar to it in theme or in plot. It may not fit their theme. Um, It may be, you know, not quite right for the mix uh, of what they're, the balance, you know, if if they are putting together an anthology and they're, they're running heavy on stories with a lot of action and you submit a story with a lot of action, they may feel like we really don't have space for another action story we need a quieter story or just you know christopher the example you use they may have too many stories about trees and now they want some moss to balance it out um so there's so many reasons that it's best to just take it in stride it's hard especially when you're starting out and you're if you're nervous about getting your work out there and i have met so many writers over the years who are really um insecure about those early submissions and just feeling like they're putting their, their heart out there and they are, and we all are, and and that's fine. Uh, and you should take it seriously, but at the end of the day, it is part of the process. And sometimes you learn from the process. Sometimes a story is declined because it's not ready for publication and your editor's doing you a favor. The worst thing an editor can do for you is accept a story that isn't really ready and not give you any feedback and that because then you're not learning and you're getting work out there that's going to represent your your writing ability that maybe doesn't really speak to what you could really do with a little bit more um of a push and so i think you always have to look at a rejection as a positive experience even though that sounds counter counterintuitive but um you know it, it it's part of the game part of the the business part of the the uh the writing life so um the main thing that's always kept gotten me through it is just to keep my eyes focused on the next project i I, a couple of years ago i took a shot with a novella at a very big publisher that had an open submission call and i heard from a lot of people who got very quick rejections and i didn't and months went by and months went by and i thought oh okay maybe who knows this this could be good um and then my rejection finally came in on my birthday, no less. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sitting there looking at the email before I open it, thinking, gee, it's my birthday. This could be the best, best, best birthday <laughs> present ever. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's not. Damn. Uh, and, and, but, you know, the thing is, at that point, I had so many other projects on my desk that I just sort of like, all right, that sucks, but we'll that. I, I don't have time to dwell on this. I'll do something right. else with this novella. So keep busy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It provides yeah. us a great segue into... But I have a segue, too, so we're going to have to split this one. You go first, and then I'm going to jump all <laughs> over mine, too. Now, oh, that is interesting. Yes. It puts the onus on both of you to go yes. through that way. you got to have the segue to segues. Yeah. Well, I think that another thing that uh, uh, we do, or many do, is um, get involved in groups and associations that can help us improve our skills or just give us a sense of community 
um, and even some feedback on our writing in occasion. And that's really uh, brings us right to HWA, uh, in particular the New York chapter. So segue number two. Well, segue number two is, is as you speak or after you speak about the New York chapter, um, it would also help, again, especially for emerging writers, to understand a little bit more about some of the elements that you feel, either one of you feel or both of you feel, go into a good horror story, whatever realm that is, psychological, gore, or whatever. So why don't we just sort of, you take, take either of those, whichever way you want to, first. Have fun. Have at it. I have a good, I have a good mishmash answer for this. Okay. Oh, mishmash. I, I love I mishmash. Found, yeah, yeah. I found HWA New York chapter accidentally through, as a matter of fact, our friend Teal James Glenn, uh, who you mentioned previously. And I had met him at, at a convention. We were signing books together. And at that point, I was writing Cyberpunk, which is kind of a dark, dreary, you know, aspect of, of sci-fi. I wasn't writing horror. I didn't like horror. Horror movies scare me. You know, okay, I, I'm honest. I went to a reading that Teal did with HWA New York in uh, in New York City. Uh, Jim already had the chapter up and running. It was robust. There were lots of activities. I loved the readings. There were people making movies in the horror realm, you know, showing them there. And I really was intrigued by the people who were writing this stuff that I actually thought was scary. And I started talking about my work with some of the people and all that. And somebody said, wait a minute, you turn children into bread dough and you say you don't write horror? Hold on. Sir. Hold on. <laughs> okay. I guess maybe I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so I, I was encouraged through meeting the people in the, the New York chapter to explore something that I had been doing without even realizing it. And um, there was a lot of good support. There were a lot of good readings. I started reading some of my stories in public, and you know, which I had not done much of before, and getting a lot of uh, uh, great support through it. So that was a really positive thing to me, to find a group of like-minded people who enjoyed writing weird stuff. I just write weird stuff, you know? Um, and so Jim already had the chapter up and running at that point. So, so Jim, let me talk, we'll, we'll turn it over to you to do your mishmash. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, mine's going to be a monster mishmash. <laughs> oh, they did the mosh. They did the monster mosh. At one of our readings where you write, Carol, I think that was part of my introduction for you was that Carol, Carol says she doesn't write horror stories, but, but. and, you know, she kept writing these great horror stories. Um, <clears throat> and the, the New York chapter, there, there was an earlier iteration of it um, that, that sort of fizzled out. And then about 2013, um, another HWA member and I decided that we wanted to get something back up and running in New York. And we, we kind of started pulling it together and, you know, just reaching out to people, doing uh, events, appearing at events, and building a community, um, a network. And people started to kind of, you know, come and like it enough that they would come back <laughs> the next time. And uh, the readings that we did were a big part of that. Um, we did events at a lot of places around uh, Brooklyn and Manhattan. We, we used to have readings at the Lovecraft Bar down on the Lower East Side, uh, the Morbid Anatomy Museum in Brooklyn, which uh, sadly now is closed. Actually, so is Lovecraft Bar. Um, the Kill Bar at Times Scare. Uh, also closed. So you may be sensing a theme here. <laughs> yeah, don't invite us anywhere. No, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> um, 
But we tried to make this is the last episode of TGA. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we, we tried to make these as engaging uh, as possible. And so our readings weren't just, um, here's a few authors sitting around reading from their work. It was Stephen Van Patten coming in with his DJ equipment and giving us musical intros and outros and interludes. It was uh, trivia giveaway questions where we would ask horror trivia questions. And, you know, the authors reading that night would often donate a book or two that they could give away to the audience. Uh, Mark Abbott has made a bunch of short horror films. And, you know, in some of our readings, we were able to show those to the audience as part of the evening's program. Um, you know, the Morbid Anatomy, Anatomy Museum was a great place just for people to come and hang out. And we would serve, you know, like cookie cookies and cake and wine and lady fingers of course yes yes, yes. <laughs> um, one of one of our very hard on her for typing later yes i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> um tanya hurley who's the author of ghost girl and the blessed series would would always bring these awesome custom cookies that were shaped like the bride of frankenstein or nosferatu or something and you know uh we had a great time i think um people saw that and so they would kind of see that we were doing something productive, something positive. And we were, we were reaching people outside the circle of other writers with those events, which is kind of the key. You want to connect with readers. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's really where the chapter was getting its strength from. Um, and we were doing that pretty actively up till March of 2020, uh, when we moved, uh, all of our meetings online to zoom and, you know, we started doing online readings and given our track record of it all, right? What's that? That was due to the COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, due to our track record closing down real life venues, we were a little afraid about the fate fate of the internet. (laughs) 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 But blamed for, yeah, no. (laughs) Um, But uh, you know, it's been great. It's And it's opened a lot of new opportunities for us. And I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, but Christopher mentioned the Galactic Terror's online reading series, and it does feature local writers, but we've also been able to have writers come in from uh, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, the West Coast, um, the mid the Midwest, um, upstate New York, from all over the place. And, and that's been like a really great opportunity for us to connect our members locally with writers from a range of places and we get an audience from a range of places. We've got people from many of those same places viewing every, uh, every week, a uh, month. I'm sorry, God, if we did it every week, but, um, <laughs> yeah, every month. um, but you know, and that's one of the things that we discuss a lot. And even in those reading online readings, we have Q and a with the authors and, and people are often asking like, what is, what are these elements of a good horror story? and what works and what inspires the authors to bring, uh, you know, write the kind of horror they write. We'll continue with this interview after a word from our sponsor. And now back to our program. I think there are two things you have to have in, in any horror story to really be effective. One is that you have to have uh, really strong characters. The characterization has to be um, well-developed and in-depth, uh, even if it's, you know, brief, it just, the characters have to be relatable in some way or real in some way so that the reader can share their fear, their horror, their revulsion, whatever it is that the story's about, or share the, the tension of their predicament or care 
just that these we, characters we have to care about them. That's the, mm-hmm. the same thing going through my head. We have yeah. to care about them. Yeah. And the other thing I think really um, important to do is establish what I kind of call it the baseline normal in that world. Horror works best when it's unexpected, when there's some contrast to reality, it's the thing out of place. And if you haven't given your reader a strong sense of what is proper and in place for that world, then it's hard to bring that, that disjointed uh, sense to it. Um, and so if you're going to describe, you know, a, a cafe where all of a sudden a chainsaw wielding maniac bursts in, you've got to make that a cafe where the details bring it to life in the reader's head. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, this is just like the Starbucks I went to last week. There, you know, somebody left napkins on the floor and there's still a spill of, co- you know, spilled coffee on the table I want to use and that kind of thing. And then the guy with the chainsaw can comes in and it's, it's all that more mm. um, effective, I think. So, the, I mean, there are a lot of other elements I could talk about, but those are the two I think really are, are essential is good characters and a very strong sense of setting. I, I, I have two thoughts I, I want to just, based on what you were saying. One is, um, I would also say pacing, um, you know, in terms of building tension and suspense. And I, I absolutely agree with both of you, and I know Chris does too. Characters, are, it's so important to us. Uh, the, the more you know them, the, the more uh, engaging they can be, the more the audience is pulled into the story. And then that's the element that we travel with on that journey. And whatever happens to them, somehow we're connected to it, and it does have that effect on us. Um, so I, I absolutely hear that. But yeah, I also think good pacing because you know you can have great characters and you can have certain horrific elements and certain very natural elements, but if you don't build to these, you know, move along these plot points and build that tension so that when that thing happens, when that unexpected shatters the reality that we just became comfortable with. You know, if they don't do it in the right way, then it's like, oh, well, I, I saw it coming or what, you know, and it throws us out of the story. So I, I do think that that's important. And I wanted to ask you, because we were talking about Kolchak and Dan Curtis and all of that before, um, characters, again, I think what you were talking about uh, made me think of another attempt by the same team or at least certain people of the same team, something called the Norlis Tapes. Uh, which was a pilot for a show about another person who winds up chasing or encountering the supernatural, and it's an average individual encountering this sort of thing. And it was the lead character was played by an actor named Roy Thinnis, and he was a writer and somewhat skeptical and everything. And I think one of the reasons that 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 pilot didn't take off, I mean, it could have been other reasons, but I think one of them was that his character was kind of matter of fact, kind of regular, kind of we've seen him a, a dozen different times. There was nothing particularly quirky or outstanding about him, as with Kolchak, who was so many quirky things and so many elements that made you kind of cared about him. You kind of wanted to get to know him. You wanted to hang with him. You felt sorry for him, all of those things. So I think, again, developing the right kind of character that really complements the story and really pulls your audience in is also very key uh, in anything, but also obviously in horror. The, uh, the ill-fated remake of the Kolchak TV series Ooh. in the 90s Ooh. is, you is brought a that fabulous up. example. You brought the- <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, but it's a fabulous, fabulous example of what you're saying, Alex, because 
the they cast uh, a rather handsome, polished British actor as Kolchak, and erased any of the the sort of everyman feeling of Kolchak, the quirkiness, or just you know, with with Darren McGavin, you never doubted that Kolchak was quaking in his shoes when he was right. sewing the zombie's mouth shut mm-hmm. or, you know, facing the, he, the fear was, was credible. Palpable. Yeah. And, and that was what part of what made him interesting is that, that every man that he's just an ordinary guy and, and they totally lost that in the remake because yeah. they cast, you know, a handsome dashing kind of personality who just couldn't play that part. Yeah. I th- I, they, 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 didn't know what made Kolchak Kolchak. And I think that's one of the things that we're talking about here is, is, you know, knowing that character is story and story is character and knowing so much about your character that you don't put on the page, but you can take little, little bits of like, it's, it's the hat, it's the rumpled suit. It's the, uh, like you said, the fear. Now McGavin, we, we had the additional, uh, benefit of being able to watch his features and his, you know, uh, his, what an expressive face. But how, both of you, please, how do you accomplish that as you're learning your craft just with a written word? <laughs> That's right. Just explain how you put <laughs> humanity on the page. No problem. 25 words or less, Chris, right? Yeah. Okay. No, I no was problem. thinking 12, but okay. No, 12 each. 12 each. I'll fight you for that last half a word, Jim. No. I, I think it's important to plan ahead and think about where are we trying to go with the story? So who's going to tell it? So, okay, now, now we know something about who it is who's going to tell it, but what's important? about that person telling this story. And okay, that's the important thing about the person telling a story, but why does anybody care about the person telling the story? Do they have something in in common? It's not a bad idea to give somebody a a foible, just like we're saying with the Kolchak character, you know, give them something that people can identify with and feel a kindred that, oh, they don't fit in, I don't always fit in. Mm. You know, that that's an easy way, I think, to establish a little bit of rapport. And in a short story, you don't have an awful lot of time to do it. Um, but what I, I, I'm in a, quite a number of critique groups. And one of the things that I, I find myself saying a lot is start your story out with the main character doing some sort of action, which is interesting, but also reveals something clearly about themselves. You know, having a big fist fight with six guys is not going to tell us anything about the guy. But if he's, you know, protecting a kid who is being kidnapped by someone, well, then that tells us a little more about him. You know, just got to focus on some way to reveal a little bit about the character at the very beginning in order to make us, you know, give us something to grab onto. You get 12 words, Jim. I used up all of them. <laughs> that was such a good answer. We're going to see what you can do now, Jim. That's it. I, uh, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> see, I did it in less than 12 words. No. What she said. I think that's all very, very right on target and true. And I think a lot of it comes down to voice. Uh, whether you're writing first person or third person, it's how you are telling the story is a big is a big part of getting the fear across or getting the uh, the unnerving aspects of the story across. And you know, in short fiction, I typically find it 
it works best where the point of view is from one character throughout the, the whole story. There are exceptions to that. There are exceptions to ev- everything anyone tells you about writing, like this is the way to do it. There are exceptions. <laughs> um, and there are reasons to break, break the rules, so-called rules, and do things differently. But I, a lot of it is voice. It's getting the story across in a way that appeals to the reader, um, that catches them the right way and sparks an emotional and psychological reaction. And sometimes that's coming down, you know, comes down to using the right idiom or the right slang or the right uh, turn of phrase that, that kind of brings a point across. Um, And it, you know, there's there, especially in short fiction and short horror fiction, there's a lot of value to be gained from misdirection uh, from starting a story out that could be going in more than one direction um, or that you may be hinting is going one direction when really it's going to go another direction by the end. And that kind of thing keeps readers interest in the story. They want to see, well, where is this going? What the, I see several possibilities here. What, what's the one that really is. And if you can guess the possibilities that they may see and then give them one they didn't uh, that, that can have a lot of, uh, resonance with the reader. So it's, it's, you know, there's a certain amount of, uh, literary sleight of hand involved in, right. in getting that stuff across. Um, but it, and it's different for every story because it really does come out of the character and the voice. And it's sort of <laughs> what, what's going to be effective in this story. And, and the same technique might not work in another story because it's, it's not the right fit. So, so when, Carol was asking the questions and you are talking about all the architecture of of the story. Um, When do those considerations come into play while you're planning the story before you've written word one or after the first draft, while you're going to rewrite a combination, what works for you, Carol, what works for you, Jim? Uh, The answer is yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now she's used all the words. <laughs> yeah, rest for you, Jim. You get 24. Yeah. No, I, I, I do try to think of those things ahead of time, but very often I will write through a story. I do a lot of dialogue is my main construction thing, and then I've got to go back with a trial and layer on some of the stuff that I didn't put in there. Uh, Seed it in, yeah. So that's, that's what I do. Uh, but, Jim, your, your mileage may vary. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, for me, it's, it depends on the story there. There are some stories I've written. They are few and far between where the full story just sort of sprang fully formed into my head. And I sat down and wrote the story. That's really wonderful when it happens. That's really rare for me, for some other, other people. I, you know, it's, that's how they write. It's just, Oh, here's a story. Let me write this down. Um, so that, that's really the main thing I think to kind of consider here, especially if you're, you're starting out writing or you're, you're early on in your career is that every story could be different. You may find things that work for you that don't work for anyone, any other writers, you know, Um, you may find that you have to adjust your approach to writing story to story, or you may find that a rigid routine helps you. You know, there's that old debate about people who outline versus people who don't. And, you know, are you an outliner or not? And it's sort of like, I, you know, yeah, sometimes I've outlined a short story. Most of the times I don't. I, I wait till I have the, the core of an idea. And then I usually mull that over until I've got the starting point 
which is where does this story begin? And, and you want to start the story as close to the end as you possibly can and still tell the whole story. Um, and so once I kind of feel like I have that, then I feel like, well, what's the, the, you know, it's almost like the declaration for this story. What's my first line? And your first line has to really be powerful. It has to be something that connects, hooks the reader, wants, makes them want to keep reading. And, and so your first line has to have story in it. But just exactly what form that takes is, you know, there's an infinite number of ways you can do that. And, but it, there has to be something that makes the reader think, oh, something's happening here. Um, when they've read the first sentence or first two sentences and, and feel like there's a question, an unanswered question they want to get to the, the bottom of or something, you know, some promise that the story is going to, to fulfill. Uh, but uh, I, do re I do rewrite. I do revise stories pretty frequently. I mean, I usually try to get through my first draft. My first drafts I find are generally pretty clean uh, as far as the prose goes, but I like to tinker with structure. And so I'll rewrite stories and move things around and, and kind of play with new ideas. Cool. Um, I was, was going to just point out uh, that one of the things that I like is, uh, again, going back to characters, when, when your character is not, as you were referring to the Brit actor earlier, perfect, handsome, blah, blah. When your character has certain physicalities that play into, and especially if we're talking horror or suspense, play into limiting them or limiting their chances against whatever terror they're about to face. Like the blind woman, you know, in an apartment with a, a killer with a knife. And, you know, how can she possibly defend herself against this kind of person? You know, I look at that. Um, I was showing uh, my writing class the other day a TV episode of a particular show. And it was not a horror show, uh, but one of the characters had a certain certain physical uh, challenges. They noticed the obvious one, which was a limp. But after an hour of watching this episode and discussing it, none of them had picked up on the fact that he couldn't turn his head naturally, that he had to shift his whole body when he went to look at somebody left or right. They never saw that. Wow. And, and I found that particularly interesting. You know, so sometimes it's about not only looking, thinking about your character in terms of their inner life and, and their thoughts and things, but also what, what, what goes on with them physically that could, as I said, play into the story as a weakness that they're going to have to somehow deal with, overcome, or be hindered by as they're trying to deal with whatever the terror or the, the fear factor is. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that's really intriguing because it also depends on who's reading the story. Somebody who had a physical limitation of their own probably would have noticed that. Mm. Uh, I, I, this is going to sound wrong and I'm talking to the three of you gentlemen here, but several of my stories that I've put through different critique groups, um, I found a, an extreme difference in the reaction from the men than from the women. And some of the women picked up subtleties about the relationship between the man and the woman that did this, that, and the other. And the guys were like, why was she such a jerk? You know? And it, it, I think it all depends on our point of view as both the reader as well as what we're presenting at the point of view in the story. So, well, of course, story, Carol, of course, Carol, that's because men are limited. I did. I did. I did. <laughs> oh, God. oh, no. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And that's not the problem. 
The problem is the communication therein. No, I, I, I agree with you and Chris in, in that that happens. That absolutely does happen. And I would just abbreviate something that Aaron Sorkin uh, said, and Chris and I have talked about this on occasion too, that when you're writing a story with two different characters on opposite ends of the pole, you have to sort of tune into both of them. You have to really get into both of those heads in order to write a convincing scene and to actually use these characters in an authentic way, not be heavy into one and kind of light on the other and not do your homework. So I think, you know, once again, the guys who went, why is she such a jerk, were guys reacting as guys as opposed to writers or maybe even being more aware guys, you know, yeah. limited guys is what they were being. Oh. <laughs> I'm not going to say. I'm just going to let that hang there. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you bring it up? <laughs> yeah. And just, um, just, just to follow on that thought too, though, uh, the other thing, once we've defined these really terrific characters that have intrigued our audience and make somebody care about them, we have to make sure that all the things they do for the rest of the story are consistent with the way that character would behave. So that's why we've got to think about them. We've got to know what, what they're like. Yeah. What are they afraid of? What are their strengths? What are their fears? What are their limitations? You know, yeah. you have to ask the questions. You do like a, a, a character bio. We've talked about a lot. Um, I, I think I have 144 questions. Like if you're really stuck, Ooh. you can go through those questions and oh, oh, you know, pick and choose and answer that for your character. And the more you know your character, the more the voice becomes authentic. I know? stopped at 40. Uh, yeah, he, <laughs> he was like, yeah, hell with you. <laughs> you limited man. I'll get um, <laughs> through the rest of it. <laughs> um, the other thing that, that writers have to do is they have to read or expose themselves, you know, to the, the writing, the ideas of other writers. And I think that might be a great place for us to talk about both HWA and what they can offer and Galactic Terrors, because that they the writers will read to you, right? So it's a great way of, in, in a very compact amount of time, uh, getting exposure to three, four different sets of ideas. Um, so can we both, uh, can we ask you to both talk about um, what a writer um, might find um, at HWA and then at Galactic Terrors? I think Jim should get to go first this time. Well, I think oh, so. Sure. He, even though he's a man, in the, uh, in and the therefore monster. limited. <laughs> um, well, one of the things the HWA offers a tremendous number of opportunities for writers at, at every level, really. From if you're a new writer looking for feedback, we have a mentorship program. Um, there are you know forums where you can connect with other writers to set up writing groups. Um, the HWA doesn't, HWA doesn't really run a writing group because there are logistical aspects to running a writing group that make it better for people to sort of find their own uh, groove on that. Um, but we also administer the Bram Stoker Awards each year. And that, that is, those are the, the, like the, um, the Edgars for mystery fiction and uh, the Oscars for movies, right. whatever, for, yeah. for horror. And part of that process is that uh, members who have work that is eligible for an awards category in a given year, uh, often share that with the membership. So as an HWA member, you'll often receive, um, you know, we call it the opt-in process where you'll receive an email or something, or someone will post in the HWA forum or on the Facebook page 
that for any any member interested, they're going to make available a, an ebook of their work or something like that. And so if you're really looking to sample what's going on in horror, then access to that is a great way to get a, a cross-section of the horror genre because, um, and I think early on, um, the membership in the HWA was, was noted at around 1,200. And I think that must be a little out of date because we're, we're up around, I think, 1,600. Wow. I think it's even higher. It, yeah. It's, something. yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It's I mean, and that's, and that's in 10 years from t- 2011 when I got involved with um, the HWA membership committee, uh, which I'm, I'm not that involved with now, but back then I was, uh, our membership was around 400, I think. And so in 10 years, we've grown by 14 or 1500 members, which is amazing. So it's, you can get a lot of insight into just the types of horror, what publishers are doing, what other authors are doing. Um, A lot of the works that are offered are anthologies, which is great because then you get, you know, insight into that publisher's uh, perspective, the editor's perspective and you get a whole bunch of other authors that you can read about so i think in that way you know it's good and and even if that's not what you're looking for there are always conversations going on uh, in the hwa the hwa facebook page which in fact is open to the public so if you know if anybody out there is interested you can and you're on facebook feel free to to join the hwa facebook group i think it's a group um that doesn't equate to membership in the HWA, but the page is public. And there's a lot of discussion on there where people will pose a question, Hey, I'm trying to write this kind of story. Does anyone have any expertise in this area or what have people found works in this? Or, Mm. you know, someone will post something like, why does anyone like Salem's lot? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And and if you, if you want to stir up a controversy, go ahead and post that because Everybody likes Salem's Lot. <laughs> um, but no, they, you know, I just mean questions like that. And they're usually, uh, I'm, I'm joking around, but they're respectful. It's people will say, what is it about this story that really what makes works. people love it? Yeah, yeah what yeah, worked? Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. get it. It didn't appeal to me. I, I didn't like it, but everyone else loves it. What did I miss? And you can just kind of talk through that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, and and... There are, you know, the HWA members in general are really nice people. Yeah. <laughs> they want to help you. If you ask a question, you'll get answers from people. Um, if you're looking to connect with other writers, you will be able to do it. I mean, you have to make the effort. You've got to get in, get involved, get engaged, um, participate in some way, whether that's volunteering or just being active in a forum or coming to StokerCon or whatever. But um, it's a really welcoming group that, you know, part of its its core mission is to help new writers. And so there's a lot of ground there that you can you can explore as a new writer. Good, 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 good. Now, what about Galactic Terrace? I mean, that is a great way. And again, it's it's open to anyone who is, you know, can type in youtube.com and then search galactic terrors right um can we talk a little bit about what that offers to someone who's interested in um hearing uh other authors hearing other stories learning oh that's what that sounds like and that's how that could work Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sure well for galactic terrors our 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 
basic selection process is we, we pick somebody, a reader from our New York chapter at least, and some folks from outside of the chapter. Uh, in the generally in the horror or sci-fi or interesting or weird, you know, kind of kind of wacky kind of genre. So there's all sorts of different things that you can experience by listening to the readers and the stories. And if you've never listened to a particular flavor of horror or other story, it may well come up. Uh, the readers we we give they get ten minutes to read their story, and we talk to them for five or ten minutes after that. And uh, we actually developed the whole chit chat part afterward because we we did this in the pandemic to replace our readings that we used to do in person. And Jim was right; those were very friendly, warm, welcoming in person events. So we decided, well, let's do the same thing. And Jim and I, you know, we, we banter and chat the same way you guys do, you know, and talk a little bit and. No, no, you never have. Basically, Alex puts up with me. (laughs) His check is in the mail, too. I know. know. (laughs) But uh, it's great because you can hear different genres. You can hear the stories in the author's own voice, which is an intriguing thing. Some it's very different when you read it on the page, when you hear a different audio reader do it or when you hear the author read it themselves and so it's fun to experience that as well and then we follow up typically we'll ask questions about that particular story or and then we'll broaden a little bit and then of course at the end we always say what do you have coming up because you know if you like this story that they read you probably want to hear what else they've got going on yeah but i think that q a is really valuable and we we found out over the first year of galactic terrors that we were spending more time on the Q&A and our, our sessions were running long and we were getting more yeah. questions. And it seemed that people were really responding to that aspect of the, mm-hmm. the program, that they enjoyed the readings, but they really enjoyed the opportunity to engage with yeah. the author afterwards. So we, when we launched year two, we went from four readers per episode to three mm-hmm. um, to allow some more time for that. And the questions we get, um, they're great. Uh, people are asking some really insightful questions about why an author wrote something the way they did or what inspired them or what kind of research they did, or does it connect to another work that, uh, you know, another literary work? Is there some kind of thematic connection there Um, or how they write their writing process? And we've been really fortunate with the readers that we've had uh, so far and, um, in terms of getting a, a range of story types, we've, we've never really had a, a session and none of this is planned because we really don't know what people are going to read <laughs> before they start reading um, that, you know, they, they sort of complement each other or they, they, they're different enough uh, tonally or structurally that it's, you know, it's a real um, dynamic uh, variety. And we've had poets come on and read a oh. few poems and, and that has been great. I, want, I wanted to uh, talk about Sarah Tatlinger. Mm-hmm. Um, she came and read a bunch, a couple of things. Uh, some of it from the Devil's Dreamland. Um, poetry inspired by H.H. H. Holmes. Holmes, thank you. I couldn't read yeah. the last little bit. Um, and Carol knows I had this ridiculous experience of... Uh, it just hit me like a bolt of lightning. And as I'm listening, I was just free writing all this. I never write poetry. So, I, but I wound up, I think I have 24 poems that tell a narrative tale. And there's probably, it probably requires 10 or 12 more for it to be a novel in poetry. It's not going to be long enough for a novel. And it does indirectly, um, 
feature my two detectives. It's all told from the killer's point of view. So they seem like, you know, it's kind of like Grendel, where, you know, Grendel's looking at Beowulf as a monster. This guy's looking at those two detectives as, you know, what the hell is that beast? Um, but it all came from her reading. I didn't expect it. I had no idea it was coming. And it, it really cemented for me uh, the possibilities, the deep and, and varied possibilities that can happen from engaging in galactic terrorists. So uh, I thank you for that. that. But um, well, you know, I can't wait is, to tell Sarah uh, that. It's I mean, great she's going to be really tickled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, awesome. I may have I may have mentioned something on Twitter or something, but uh, yeah. And then I I had to read all of her stuff, and oh yeah. So we'll, well see where it that's, goes. But. That's the beauty of 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 really you know everything that that you guys do that the organization in you know HWA does, and even you know now that you're utilizing YouTube in this fashion. It's really opening up the doors for not only emerging writers, but for writers, period. Because we're, it's, to me, it's always a constant learning and exposing yourself to good quality material and even struggling material because we can learn from it, we can grow from it, or sometimes we can be of help. So I think that, you know, creating a, a community that's nurturing that way is fantastic. And, and I want to thank you for it. And I also want to thank you guys for spending this much time with us <laughs> because it has been a hoot and a half. Absolutely. We had so much fun. We never even mentioned Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> mentioned what? Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's, that's that old movie, right? Where, yeah. Right. Where can where can people uh, find you or get in touch with you? That you know, what what addresses do you want to throw out there? Social media you want to throw out there? I'm Carol Geisander on everything, and uh, my name is on the screen for those who can see it. But Geisander is G Y Z A N D E R. So that's me on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. I'm Carol Geisander every place. Yep. Uh, uh, my website is jameschambersonline.com. And uh, bear, bear with me if you go there in, in the next few days. It's in the process of a redesign. So it's, it's uh, in sort of a uh, uh, pupil state, I guess, <laughs> before it becomes a full uh, As long as we're not doing website. alien here with <laughs> <laughs> and and what about HWA? Yeah, we you, well we have our New York chapter website is hwany.org and that's for all the, the New York chapter stuff. We also have a Facebook page where you can find us and we post uh, a lot of fun stuff there. And the main, you know, the mothership as we call it, HWA website is horror.org. So that's an easy one. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I'm on social media too. Under I think you can find me under James Chambers on Facebook and Mothman13 on uh, Instagram and Twitter. There you go. Okay. He decrypted, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and folks, uh, just, yeah. Uh, go ahead. I add one, one more link that I'd like to throw out there. You know, Jim, Jim has done an awful lot more stuff with HWA than we even got to mention here. And I'm trying to follow in his footsteps a little bit because I have a job with HWA, a volunteer job. I'm one of the chapter program managers where my job is to help people form new chapters across the U.S. I work in the U.S. We have one gal doing international. So, um, and I'm following in Jim's footsteps because that's an unofficial job he did where they had to give three of us the responsibility to do this, you know, uh, in his place. Um, but in it, for folks who are interested in uh, learning more about chapters or, or starting a chapter with HWA, chapters at gmail at uh, horror.org is um, the website for that. Would you repeat that again, please? Chapters at 
horror dot. Oh my gosh, Jim. Org. Yeah. Okay. Chapter horror dot org. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Ever have those moments where you say, "What did I just say?" Yes, and why? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if I got you, Carol, it takes three legitimate volunteers to do one James Chambers job. Got gotcha. you. Right. Yep. Got it. Yep. Got it. Because okay. not all of us can be She's, James Chambers. <laughs> She's exaggerating. She's uh, yeah, sure she is. Right. Okay, James. <laughs> well, once again, thank you again. Again, 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 again for, for being a part of this. And certainly we will, you know, kicking and screaming, drag you guys back here at some yeah. point so we can do more of this because it was really great. I had a lot of fun. How about you, Chris? Oh, yeah. I just want to hear more and more about Kojak. So, you know, <laughs> Kolchak, put oh, the yeah. L in there. Yeah, We're right. Really, as opposed to who loves you, baby. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, okay then, Chris. As always, it's a thrill to be here with you. And we'll Always do it again because presence. that's what we do. Thank you, everybody, and remember to continue to tell your damn story. All right. Thank you Thank so you very much. much, both of you. Happy yeah. Halloween. Peace, everybody.